Well, we are continuing our series on the thread. And we started the week after Easter, and we've been preaching on it ever since. And our goal is that by the time summer is done, that you'll be able to talk somebody through the story and theme of the Bible. And the thread that goes throughout Scripture is this. Would you repeat after me? Look forward to Jesus. That theme is basically found in uh, every book of the Bible in one way or another. And so let me just give you a brief look back on where we've been so far. We started with creation. We identified that creation is fallen and went from the creation of the world, the miraculous creation, uh, to the flood. And uh, boy, I thought last night, I don't know where you were at 530, but I thought we were reenacting the, the story of Noah and the ark. Uh, it was raining so hard you could hear it pounding on the roof, and it was uh, pretty sobering. Uh, but we made it through. In fact, our safety team, uh, kudos to them. I mean, before service, we're tracking uh, weather, and there's this tornado warnings. We'll let you know and all that kind of stuff. But they were totally in charge and prayed it all the way. Uh, we had a great time. We had, uh, we had Chick-fil-A night last night. So if you weren't here, actually, if you weren't here, we have some leftovers, seriously. If you stop by the cafe down by door two, we're the only place in town selling Chick-fil-A and chips <laughs> and a cookie and a drink for four bucks. So you can't beat that. Um, but anyways... Uh, so we had creation gets flooded, and then uh, we looked at the idea that the chosen family finds their way to the promised land. So let me kind of show you a map and talk through that briefly. Uh, in this map, you'll see that uh, scholars speculate that the Garden of Eden was somewhere up in the corner of modern-day Iraq. And then uh, we traveled down to somewhere between Iraq and Iran on the Persian Gulf, near the Persian Gulf, uh, where Abraham's father, Terah, would have lived. He journeyed up to Haran, which is around the northern area of uh, the northern border of Syria near Turkey. And then God called Abraham. At that time, his name was Abram, if you remember. said, leave your father's territory. Go to the land I'll show you. He goes down to Israel, which is the promised land. Uh, while he is there uh, in, in Israel... Abraham, we have a family tree here. Abraham has a son, Isaac. By the way, if you're saying, oh, this is really cool graphics, this handout is available when you leave today. Ask your section leader or somebody at the VIP room. They'll give this to you if you like uh, handouts. So Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They're listed there. They're significant because they become the names and sort of patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel, from Reuben all the way down through Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. If you remember the story, those sons, 10 of them, really hated uh, Joseph as dad's favorite son. And so they plotted against him. They sold him into slavery to some Midianite traders who were passing by. And those traders uh, took him to Egypt. Uh, and uh, he was there in prison. In prison, he interpreted the king's dream that there were going to be seven years of, fam of, of plenty than seven years of famine. He also had a plan for how to plan for that. And the king was so impressed uh, that God made him second in command. And when the famine hit, uh, long story short, Jacob and his whole household moved to Egypt uh, and Joseph was able to spare them. They flourished, became a nation within a nation, so much so that it became an intimidating thought to the king of Egypt. And so he decided to make them slaves. And Israel became slaves in Egypt for four centuries until they were finally delivered by a guy whose name started with M. Moses. All right, there you go. And so we have another map that shows uh, the path that Moses 
Looks kind of like me, but uh, no. Uh, when they left Egypt, scholars speculate two possible paths uh, to Mount Sinai, depending on the, the location, and then up to Kadesh Oasis. At Kadesh Oasis is where, where Moses sent 12 spies, one from each tribe, into uh, the promised land. And he said, check it out. God promises to us. Tell us what it's like. If you remember, they all came back, all 12. It is amazing. It's just it's flowing with milk and honey. There's all kinds of bounty there. But 10 of the 12 spies said what? We can't have it. It's filled with fortified cities and armies. And there's lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. They're, they're just freaked out. We can't do it. Two spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, of course we can. God already gave it to us. Let's take it. But the 10 taught us a lesson of the danger of listening to a bad report because the whole nation of Israel turned and started weeping and blaming Moses and Aaron, saying, you should have left us in Egypt. We're going to die in the wilderness. And so uh, they, they wandered, got... When you complain, God is not fond of that. It represents a, a lack of our faith. And so God says, fine, you want to die in the wilderness? Die in the wilderness. Be careful what you say. Life and death are in the power of the tongue, the Bible says. Those who love it will eat its fruit. And if you complain enough about you're going to die in the wilderness, God says, fine, die in the wilderness. That entire generation did. A new leader, Joshua, rose up, and he led the people into the promised land. What's sad was that the original Israelites were supposed to take a matter of weeks, maybe months, travel from Egypt to the promised land, go in and take it and settle. They wasted 40 years out of their own complaining and disobedience. Joshua, though, rises up, leads the people in. God says to Joshua, be strong, courageous, and careful. Pastor Chris talked about that last week. Joshua goes in. They conquer the promised land, called, often called the land of Canaan. And then it's followed by the book of Judges, where they settled the promised land. This final map that, again, is available as a handout when you leave, shows the different states, if you will, named after the tribes. If you start at the bottom, there's Simeon, Judah, Reuben, Dan, Ephraim, and whatnot. And so those territories were assigned to the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, during the period of the judges, uh, God's design was that Israel would be a theocracy. He would be the king, and the people would serve him. And there would be judges appointed, uh, like Gideon and Deborah, who would legislate God's laws and interpret them to the people. But the book of Judges has a tragic verse that's repeated. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That created a roller coaster, a moral and societal roller coaster, and shows us that when everyone does what's right in their own eyes, it is a recipe for societal disaster then and now. And so that's where we kind of pick up our story. We've gone from Genesis through the book of Judges. And uh, this weekend's message, if I were to title it, it would be We Three Kings. Uh, not named after the Christmas hymn. Uh, but we're going to look at the golden age of Israel. Because as a monarchy, okay, if you're going to have a king, there were three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, and they reigned during the time when Israel was united, all 12 tribes together serving God. That was the plan. And uh, we'll pick up the story with the first king. And, and these three kings are kind of like bookends. Uh, the one each end serve as a bad example. And the one in the middle is the one to follow after, live that kind of life. So the first bad example, because the Bible is not sugarcoat things. The Bible's pretty honest, and it shows both the, the successes and failures of people. Uh, the first king, I would say the driving motive, would you repeat after me, just like everybody else. Whenever that's your motive for something, check your motive. 
And so uh, we look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel's getting old. Uh, he has led with integrity, but he has a couple of sons who did not lead with integrity. So people are thinking, what do we do next? And it says in verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Or one version says, like everybody else. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. Now that's not because it was a good idea. It goes on to say, For they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. There are some of you to whom the example of Saul and the people of Israel applies very closely. I would say to you, beware. Some of you are living lives and aspects of your life, and it really wasn't what God wanted for you, but you insisted you had to have your own way. You hardened yourself, and you're going to get it. And maybe you prayed a prayer over it to kind of put a spiritual gloss on it, but it is not God's plan A for you. You have insisted on plan B, and what we see here is sooner or later, if you continue to insist and harden your heart, God will say, fine. You want plan B? Have plan B. That's what they did. And unfortunately, uh, when we look at, at it, God gave them plenty of warning. He warned them that if you have a king, he's going to draft your sons into the army. He's going to take your daughters as his servants, as cooks and perfumers and bakers. He's going to put you into forced labor on his farms, forced labor to build his, to make his weapons. Uh, he'll take the best of your land. So he'll take a 10% tax from everyone and uh, he will oppress you. And God says, then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Interesting. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, there shall be a king over us. And li listen to what happens in this next sentence. That we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Did you catch the downgrade? Before this, God would fight their battles with them, for them, through them, and now we want a king to fight our battles. But it's just like everybody else. And so that's what God gave to them. And notice what God says there. I'm not going to answer you. When you insist, when you go your own way, when you go ahead and, and deny what I wanted and insist on the other, you can finally have that, but then don't ask me to fix it when you knew full well what you were doing and where you were going. So read the story of Saul. Saul is out one day. His father, Kish, lost some donkeys. He sends his son, Saul, to go find them in the wilderness, and that's where he and Samuel happen to meet. Long story short, he looks like a king. He's head and shoulders taller than everybody else, and uh, sure enough, the, uh, Samuel anoints him as king of Israel. And we see something about Saul from the get-go that is his Achilles heel that is the reason for his demise. Early on, Samuel says to Saul, I want you to go to Gilgal. I want you to wait there for seven days. And at the end of that week, I will come and I'll offer a sacrifice for, to God before you go into battle because you aren't authorized to offer sacrifices. That's a spiritual work and you're the king. So wait for me and I'll do that. So 
Uh, Saul goes ahead and heads to Gilgal. Day one, day two, no Samuel. Day, Samuel said seven, but you know, day three, day four. Anybody else not real good at waiting? All right. Day five, day six, days that people are starting to scatter a little bit. Where's Samuel? Why aren't we going to battle? The Philistines are upon us. Day seven, Saul finally takes things into his own hands and he goes ahead and he offers a sacrifice even though Samuel said, don't. Samuel said, wait. And what I've learned and I see here and elsewhere and in my own life, have you noticed that God's timing is different than yours? Typically, it's way longer than mine. Like I want the answer here. God says, no, here will be fine. That's what we see. And so Saul offers a sacrifice. As soon as he offers a sacrifice, guess who shows up? Samuel. Now listen to Saul, because in his response, we see a lot that reveals his heart. But Samuel said, what have you done? 1 Samuel 13, 11. And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me. You elect a king because of people pressure. Saul offers a sacrifice because of people pressure. And that you did not come within the appointed days. He blames Samuel. And the Philistines were assembling in Michmash. Therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. It's your fault, Samuel. You didn't come when you said you'd come. So I made myself do it. Somebody had to do it. Beware to those of you who like to blame other people or other circumstances. Well, because of them, because of her, because of him, it's my spouse, it's my parents, it's my family, it's my boss, it's my whatever. And beware to those of you who rationalize your sin. Well, I had to. You know, what else choice did I have? Or, or many times we sin because we compare our sin to somebody else's sin. It's not as bad as their sin, so if they got away with it, and I can do I mean, Saul was a rationalizer and a blamer. And you can read that and see that throughout his life. And so as he does that, we see that God says, okay, i gotta, I got to find a new plan. Even though Saul led Israel for over 40 years. His reign was good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. But over and over again, you saw that trait come. He was not steadfast. He was not consistent. He was not faithful. He was not obedient. He would always succumb to pressure. Even one time when he was disobedient and, and Samuel said, okay, I'm done with you. And Saul goes, no, no, at least, he doesn't say let's fake it, but let's fake it. Go with me to the temple and let's offer a sacrifice so we look good in front of the people. That's basically a paraphrase, but that's where his head was at. And so if you look at the change of kings from Saul uh, to David, in that same instance in 1 Samuel chapter 13, in uh, verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. It would have been you, your sons, your sons' sons, your grandsons, and on, on, on. And this is early in his kingdom. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. Now notice something. Saul's reign doesn't end now. It took decades. And one of the bad things about sin is did you ever commit a sin and you didn't pay for it right away? Nod your head, come on. And so unfortunately we get conditioned that I sinned but I kind of got away with it so maybe I can get away with it and it accumulates in us. 
The Lord has appointed, appointed him as a ruler over his people, a man after God's own heart, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so we see Samuel then going to the house of Jesse, who has seven sons, and, and he says, I'm here to look for a king. And Jesse brings all of his sons but his youngest son in to see Samuel. And they look kingly, and, and God says, nope, not him, not him, not him. And finally Samuel says, is this all your sons? I thought God told me to come here to your house. He goes, well, I got one more son, but David's just a boy. He's out in the field tending my sheep. He couldn't possibly be the king. Now bring David into and when God sees David, Samuel sees David, God says, that's the guy. So he anoints David as king, and he's just a teenager, maybe 13, maybe 15. But we see the things that set him apart and why God would choose him. We see this man after God's own heart. He had a heart of courage. And so let's look at a scene that shows that. Well, you know the famous story. Uh, the Israelites were at battle with their arch enemies, the Philistines. And, and in those days, uh, armies would often square off with each other. They'd find a valley, and the Philistines would be on that side, lined up in battle array, and the Israelites on this side of the valley in battle array, and they would stand there with their weapons and yell at each other across the valley. And unfortunately, the Israelites on this occasion allowed the enemy to set the terms of engagement. That's a mistake. And they said, let's go ahead and let's, let's just do this. Rather than everybody slaughter each other, let's just send out our champion. You send out your champion and win or take all. Yeah, that sounds good. Until they saw who their champion was. And the Philistines sent out this guy who is some kind of a, a genetic mutant. And his name is Goliath. And he comes out there, you know, fee-fi-fo-fum. He's nine and a half feet tall, the Bible says. So think of an NBA rim that you can't dunk over. It's six inches shorter than the rim. He's got, a, he's got a helmet and a, show, and a shield and armor, and he's got a javelin and a sword and all the spears and all that, and he is a furious warrior. He comes out every day, and he's cursing and profanity and all kinds of slander against the Israelites. Come on, send me your champion. I'm ready. What's amazing, read the story. It says the Israelites will go out every day shouting the battle cry and lining up, Aah! and then they are scared to death. I'm not, I'm not, 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 not go, 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 going out there. So Jesse says, as the battle's going on, why don't you go out to the battlefront and check out how your brothers are doing. So David, young David, the shepherd boy, comes out and he checks with his brothers and they're like, oh, you're just, you know, being nosy. Get, get back home, kid. And David says, what's going on? And he finds out what's going on with Goliath. He goes, well, who is this guy to taunt the armies of the living God? I'll take him on. So word travels to Saul, hey, there's a, there is someone here who wants to, wants to fight Goliath. And they didn't have, they couldn't like take a picture and text it to him. And so Saul's like, yeah, bring him here. Finally, a warrior with courage. And then you can imagine Saul's heart kind of sinks. He sees this teenage kid walking. He's probably 13, 14, 15 at the most. That he's going to... Saul realized, well, it's him or who? Nobody. Okay, so I'll give you my armor. Puts his armor on, gives him all his weapons. And David's like, I can't hardly move in this king. I can't do this. I got to do what I know. So he leaves it all behind. And remember what he takes with him? He takes a slingshot, a bag of rocks, five rocks, and a stick. That sounds like what I had when I would go with my friends in the woods. We played pretend army, you know? I mean, I got my stick. So David goes walking out there and faces Goliath. 
Can you imagine Goliath's rage? He goes from insulted and raged to laughing, like, I'm going to slaughter this kid. And that's exactly what Goliath does. He issues such threats that I would be scared senseless. But listen to David. Listen to this teenager and the heart of courage that he had in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted this day. Say this day. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. I will give the dead bodies of the armies of the Philistines. He's calling out everybody, all right? This day, say this day. To the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth and all the, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know, the guys behind me, that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear for the battle is the Lord's and he'll give you into our hands. That is a heart of courage. Now, if there are no other lessons than this, David teaches us something hugely significant about the giants in our lives. Many of you have them. If you're not facing one now, live a while. One will show up. The giant can be in the form of a Goliath of a medical diagnosis. Goliath can ravage your career or your finances or your marriage or your family or your academic career or your relationship, whatever the case might be. And, and, and it is so easy for us to fall into despair and pessimism and fear. And what David does for us is David shows the value of a godly spiritual imagination. People often come to me, Pastor Stan, pray for me. I'll pick a, pick a problem. I've been diagnosed with cancer. I don't tell them, let's pray, let's, I do, let's pray for recovery and healing, but I don't tell them, well, don't think about it. Because I don't know about you, the Goliaths in my life, I think about them. So I say, okay, at least be fair, because how many of you know it's easy when Goliath shows up to just already go down to defeat, right, mentally? And you're the, boom, and you're worst case scenario. I tell them, as, as, as much as, for every hour you think about how that could go bad, think an hour and five minutes about who go right, how could go right. So for every hour that you're thinking about you're living homeless because you lost your job and you can't find another one, whatever, think about finding a new one and a year later saying, wow, I'm better in a better place now than I was. For every hour you spend thinking about the diagnosis from bad to worse and you're at your own funeral, think about how instead an hour and five minutes worth of, you know what, looking back and a year later you're saying, I am feeling better than I've ever felt before. God touched me. Use your imagination like David did in a spiritual way to fantasize, not fantasies, but to dream about the kind of solutions God can bring to your otherwise insurmountable giant. He had a heart of courage. Have one. Have a, he had a heart as a true friend. You can read about his relationship with, with Jonathan that was the son of Saul, King Saul. And here's the problem. Uh, David had difficult people in his life too. You don't have any, so we'll just move on. No. David had Michal was his one, one of his wives, and the Bible says she despised her husband, so she was a difficult person. Saul was a difficult person because as soon, it doesn't surprise me, you know, Saul, as soon as David has, uh, kills Goliath, they have a victory parade, right? And what are, the, what are they saying? Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. Victory parade. It's supposed to be a good thing. 
Last, last night, Joyce and I were watching a, a documentary on Cleveland sports. <laughs> How basically our psyche has been damaged by all the losing, right? <laughs> no kidding. And, and so they, they, then they talk about when LeBron came on. I mean, they went through the fumble and the drive and all the pain of Cleveland sports. But they, when LeBron came on, he won the championship. And they were literally showing the, the, the victory parade. And I remember Joyce and I were on vacation. I watched the victory parade on my iPad in our, in our hotel room because I just had to see it once in a lifetime, probably. And I, I got a little teary last night, just, but anyway, <laughs> they got this victory parade, and they're cheering David on, and from that day on, Saul is jealous and despises him and literally wants to kill him. Talk about a difficult person in his life, and, and over and over again, there were, de- there were death attempts where, where Saul tried to kill David, and he could elude that. A couple of times, David could have taken revenge and taken Saul's life, but he said, no, I will not touch God's anointed. David had a respect for a person in authority, understanding what we don't, that even though you don't respect the person, you respect the authority that God has given them, because that authority comes from God. So David said, nope, I'm not going to do it. So from the time he's 16 to the time he becomes king at 30, he has to deal with the difficulty of Saul. He has to deal with a guy named Shimei. And they're on this royal uh, parade-like, and Shimei is just walking alongside, just kicking rocks and swearing at David. And the guy's like, he wants to take this guy out. Nah, leave him alone. Some of you have got difficult people in your life, and they're kicking rocks and saying nasty stuff. You're wasting all your time and energy on them. Leave them alone. Just let them go. They're not worth the distraction and the energy. Didn't say that any other service but this one, so that's for somebody. So there was Joab, the commander of his armies, who turned on David and betrayed him. Some of you know what betrayal feels like. And in fact, two of David's own sons tried to take his kingdom from him in his latter years. So David knew what it was like to live with difficult people, but he still was willing. He didn't just put up walls and not going to let anybody get close. No, he still was willing to have the heart of a friend because we all need close friends. He had the heart of true surrender. He had the heart of integrity. And in, in Psalm 78, it says, God also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the sheep. And he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. Those of you who lead, whether it's leading in your home, your school, your workplace, your church, your community. Ask God for a heart of integrity and ask him to give you the skill to lead with skillful hands, to do so with all diligence. Unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, 2 Samuel 11 shows us he had a heart that could still sin because he committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. And then, as many times, when you try to cover up your sin, it goes from bad to worse. And it was a nightmare that David would have never thought he was capable of. David shows us that very godly people, at the wrong moment, at the wrong time, can do very ungodly things they never would have thought they would. And I won't ask for a show of hands, but many of us here say, yep, I know exactly what you mean. And David rationalized and tried to cover it up. But then David shows that he had a heart of repentance because when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet and he says, no, you're the man, you're guilty, he realized what he had done. 
Uh, David, read Psalm 51. It is his psalm of repentance and contrition. And he says, among other things, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence, God. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. The difference between Saul and David, man after God's own heart, not. When confronted, Saul blamed and rationalized, and it's not me. David, when confronted, you're right, brokenhearted, repented, forgiven, still trust God. Now, one thing we see that many of us already know is that when we are forgiven, while I often say that blessings follow obedience, you've got obedience and God blesses that, disobedience is often followed by guilt and shame, and so we ask for forgiveness. So disobedience, blessings, blessings follow obedience. Disobedience is followed by guilt, and then if we ask, forgiveness. But then after disobedience and forgiveness, it's often consequences, not blessings. And it makes no biblical sense to me to pray, God, I sinned, I thank you for forgiving me. Now, can we just forget that thing about consequences? Because what we see in the life of a man after God's own heart who was so contrite, so repentant, so sorry that his prayer of apology is literally a chapter in the Bible. God said, now therefore, David, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despise me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So to those of you that what you did was a month ago, months ago, years ago, and you're still living out the consequences, some consequences last a long time, and I, consequences, just, that's why God says don't do it. What do you do with consequences? Rather than pray, God, stop them, God, get rid of them, because we see he often does. He didn't do that for Israel, a whole nation. He didn't do that for David, man, after God's own heart. I'm not surprised when he doesn't do it for me. I have to live with the consequences. So instead, my prayer is, God, give me wisdom with this situation that I've helped create. Give me grace in this situation that I've helped create. And give me strength to endure and persevere in this situation that I helped create. You look at David's life and he united the kingdom. It was the glory days of Israel. They were this huge military power. They spanned from Egypt to the river Euphrates. I mean, it was just incredible what David did. Orchestrated the people in worship to God as the only true God. And then uh, David is going to pass from the scene. And two of his sons, as I mentioned, tried to take the kingdom and David wouldn't let that happen. And so in 1 Kings chapter 2, we see a a king that's handpicked that had a strong start. And that's Solomon. And so in 1 Kings chapter 2, it says, As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinance, and his testimonies. According to what is written in the law of Moses, say the law of Moses. That's referen that references to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Hold that thought. That you may succeed in all that you do. Blessings follow obedience and wherever you turn. 
so that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. It'll go on and on and on and on. Solomon, young Solomon, is overwhelmed with this. And what is an incredible story in 1 Kings chapter 3, it says, In Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. What would you ask if God said, Whatever you want is yours? Here's what young Solomon, young Solomon prayed to God, and uh, he basically said, Lord God, Give me wisdom to lead your people that I might lead them in ways of righteousness. And, and several times in his prayer, Solomon says, you've made your servant king in my father's place. Your servant is in the midst of your people. So give your servant an understanding heart. Over and over again, you see where he's coming from. He is a servant leader. He is a humble young man. And he says, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? It's the golden age of Israel. We span farther than we ever thought we could. There there's power and might and wealth. Just give me wisdom. That's all I ask for. And in heaven, God's like telling the heavenly, man, did you hear what he just asked for? Is that amazing or what? I'm going to bless him. And so God basically responds to Solomon. And he says, you know what? Since you haven't asked for riches and power and fame and all that, in verse 13 he says, I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among you, among the kings like you all your days. You are going to be number one. And that's exactly who he was. He was the wealthiest king, most powerful king. He was the wisest man on the face of the earth. He wrote three books of the Bible. He wrote almost all the book of Proverbs, which is 31 chapters of just everyday wisdom that is still legit 3,000 years later. So whatever, if you have a trouble, I can't get into the Bible, whatever day of the month it is, pick that day, go to that chapter and read it. There'll be something in there you get something from. He wrote the book of Song of Solomon, which is a tremendous love song between a king and his queen. It's also an allegory between Christ and the church. And he wrote then years later, and if, if, if the artist or the author is reflected in their work, something changed by the time he writes Ecclesiastes. When he writes Ecclesiastes, it's not this young buck who's all optimistic and going to go change the world. Instead, he, he writes things like, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I set my heart to, to go after wealth. It's worthless. I set my heart to go after power, after learning, education, after wisdom. It's worthless, worthless, worthless. There's nothing new under the sun. Something changed in old Solomon. Something changed that introduced disaster to the nation that he led. Next week, we're going to look at what is disastrous for any nation, and it's a little too close for comfort. It's way too close for comfort for me. But let's look at then the, the, the very next point, the final point. Choose your final chapters. When you look at the final chapters of Saul's life, David's life, and Solomon's life, we see the key. And in 1 Samuel chapter 28, we look at what Saul said. Tragic. A guy who's the first king anointed to be king of Israel. And Saul answered, he said, I am greatly distressed 
For the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me, no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams. How catastrophic and sad is that? But see, Saul's problem was he was religious. He went through the religious motions, but it never really transformed his heart. And that kind of person, long enough, when you just go through religious motion, you just kind of check in here or whatever to just do your, your thing and you're gone. Well, it doesn't really change you on the inside. Then, then your relationship with God becomes an empty shell. Solomon. We look at Solomon. What went wrong with Solomon? Why did his tone and demeanor change? And he had everything handed to him. In 1 Kings 11:4, it says, For when Solomon was old, his wife turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. And what's interesting is uh, I mentioned to you how uh, it's said to keep the law of Moses. When you go back to Deuteronomy, the last book of the law of Moses, and you read about God's warning, if you ever have a king, God says, your king shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to turn to Egypt to multiply horses, nor shall he multiply wives for himself. He shall not increase silver and gold for himself. And guess what Solomon's biography includes? 700 wives and 300 concubines. What? He was so wealthy that silver became worthless in silver and gold. And guess what Solomon amassed to himself but a phenomenal army, army uh, filled with horses and chariots. And want to guess where they came from? Egypt. Solomon did everything picture perfect that God's word said not to do. And the only thing I can imagine, how does that happen? It doesn't happen overnight because on day one, he's this sensitive, humble servant leader. All I want is wisdom to lead as you have called me to lead. I can only surmise that what happened to Solomon can happen to most of us as American Christians if we're not extremely careful. And that is that Solomon lost his humble dependence on God through the blessings and the success and the power, and it distracted him to disobedience and destruction. I feel bad for God, if that makes sense, that the very one who blesses us, we get distracted away from him to the blessings, to the wealth, to the power, to the fame, to the convenience, to the whatever. And what we used to be, there was a time when Solomon was so amazed and so in awe of it, but then he became somewhat Saul-like and he could go ahead and compromise and, and rationalize. And he didn't just add one wife, but hundreds of wives. He didn't just have some wealth, but phenomenal wealth and multiply. Every, it's a picture-perfect rebellion against what God said. So much so that when you look at then how things fell down spiritually, he literally, it says that he built high places for Shamash, he built, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Do you know who Molech was? He was a pagan god to whom his followers offered child sacrifice. This is the wisest godly man on the planet. If the wisest, formerly godly man on the planet can sin in such horrible ways, so can I. So can you. Well, is there any remedy? Is there any hope? Yes. We, 
We learn from Saul, we learn from Solomon, and then we follow after the example of David. Because you look at David, this man after God's own heart, when he was a kid in the fields, wrote some of those psalms that we look at now, because it was in the fields that God saw him as a man after God's own heart. When he was writing psalms of wonder for creation, how amazing God was, and he started that when he was young, and yes, he sinned and failed, but he repented, and God restored him, and he went through the consequences, but he, stayed, he kept his heart tender before God. One of the last prayers of his life, Second Chron- First Chronicles 29, David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is the power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and we praise your glorious name. David, from the time he first knew of God to the time he breathed his dying breath, was all about, it is all about God. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's not about me. It's not about mine. And so today we want to challenge you to take a stand and say, yes, I, I will be a person after God's own heart. Come hell or high water. Come Goliath, come beautiful pastors. I will be a person after God's own heart and I will trust him for all the provision. I will give him all the glory. I will give him all the praise. It is not about me, it is about him. And the team is gonna come and as they come, this past month, about 40 of our youth participated in a competition in fine arts and in several different areas, and one of them, our, our ensemble, participated. And you're going to see members of our ensemble from our youth group. Some of these guys are about the age of David when he took down Goliath. And the song they're going to sing is, Give me a heart like David. Lord, be my defense so I can face my giants with confidence. You took a shepherd boy and made him a king, so I'm going to trust you and give you everything. I'll be a conqueror because you'll fight for me. I'll be a champion. And I'm here to tell you, it is never too late to say, okay, God, regardless, I might have lived a Saul-like past, but I'm drawing a line in the sand, and from this day forward, I'm going to be a man or woman after your own heart. It's going to all be about you from this day forward. So make that your prayer. Make that your declaration. Stand together with us today. Let's sing about the confidence we have in God.
Enjoy the rest of your weekend.